You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, I'm John Donvan with Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. And right now, our team is headed to Brussels, where we're staging a debate on the state and future of the transatlantic partnership. Will the U.S. and Europe stay close friends on the world stage? Or has populism and nationalism on both sides of the ocean undermined this historic partnership irreparably? We're teaming up with the German Marshall Fund to produce this one, and it will be in your podcast feed on July 12th. Until then, I want to share a podcast from our partners at the German Marshall Fund, and it's called Out of Order. In this episode, the German Marshall Fund's president, Karen Donfried, sits down with senior fellow Peter Sparting to discuss the future of the transatlantic relationship. Give it a listen. I think you're going to like it. One last thing, please. We are asking for your help right now, because when you give Intelligence Squared U.S. debates five stars on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, you help other people find us. So if you enjoy our debates, please rate and review us today. I'm sure we agree. America needs reasoned, balanced discussion now more than ever. Hello and welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast about how our world was, is, and will be ordered. My name is Peter Sparding. I'm a fellow here at GMF, and I will be your host today. Well, I think we have a lot of foes. I think the European Union is a foe, what they do to us in trade. Now, you wouldn't think of the European Union, but they're a foe. We want in Poland the kind of allied forces that would deter Russia, but not threaten Russia. Yeah. This means a European army, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah, we are working on that, yeah. What we should be doing is working with the EU more. And this is, this is a shame, because we are partners on not only trade, but so many issues. Ever since the election of Donald Trump, European leaders have been trying to figure out what his presidency would mean for them. Now, more than halfway through President Trump's first term, we can actually see how Europe is responding. GMF's president, Karen Donfried, recently wrote an article about the topic for Defense One. I sat down with Karen to discuss the different European approaches to the U.S. and what they might mean for Europe and for transatlantic relations going forward. So we are here with GMF president, Karen Donfried. Karen, thanks for joining us again. Great to be here. And what we want to talk about is how Europe has reacted to the developments in the U.S., how it is responding, so to speak. Karen, you travel a lot to Europe and you have recently written and distilled differing responses you have seen. So I think you have termed them quite neatly and I thought that was very helpful. So maybe for our listeners, could you tell us which three responses you have identified? Well, thanks, Peter. And you are right that I probably travel too much. So I'm always struck by how folks in different countries are responding to U.S. policy. And what struck me when I touched down in Paris 
is the balance of opinion and the foreign and security policy community seems to be that America has gone bad and the French need to double down on a policy of strategic autonomy. The view is they can no longer depend on the United States. They are clear-eyed enough to know that they are far away from strategic autonomy today, so they would have to invest much more in their defense forces and their intelligence services, but they think the time is now to do that. And if not, they are closing their eyes to the reality that the U.S. increasingly is going to be less available for European interests. I then continue on to Berlin. And I would say there are a lot of Germans who find attractive this French view of strategic autonomy. And it's an appealing goal. But I do not think that's where the balance of opinion in Germany is. I think most Germans advocate for a policy of strategic patience. So strategic patience with the United States. And what do they mean by that? They would argue that the change that they are experiencing now in the German-American relationship is a cyclical change. It has to do with the outcome of a particular election with a specific U.S. president who has an untraditional view of the relationship with our European allies. So it's a cyclical change rather than a structural change. It's not that America has gone bad or that Americans forever will have this view of the transatlantic relationship as something transactional rather than something enduring. Now, Germans do not argue that post-Trump, whenever that is, whether it's, you know, at the end of a four-year administration or the end of eight years, two terms. But they think whomever succeeds Trump won't return to the status quo ante, won't return to where we were before Trump, but will have a more traditional view of the value that a strong American relationship to Europe brings to the U.S. So that you'll have a return to an understanding of the U.S. benefiting from a deep relationship with Germany and other European allies. And you see this with Chancellor Merkel. I mean, she'll talk about how the United States has become a less reliable ally, but she always also says the relationship to the U.S. is crucial for Germany. So, okay, I'm thinking about strategic autonomy versus strategic patience, and then my next stop is Warsaw. And my Polish interlocutors ask me what I'm talking about, strategic autonomy versus strategic patience? The Poles look at me and say, we are all about strategic embrace of the United States. And they say, look, Karen, we have a big, scary neighbor on our east called Russia. And if we're honest, we're not 100% sure that the French, the Germans, our other European allies will come to defend us at the end of the day if the Russians attack. So we are going to double down on our relationship with the U.S. So, you know, for the current Polish government, there's an ideological affinity to the Trump administration, but there is also an existential threat the Poles feel that they face that necessitates this embrace of the United States. And you see a very clear example of this 
in the support there is in Poland for a permanent base of U.S. forces in Poland. And when on the last visit of Polish President Duda, it was very striking to me after his meeting with President Trump, he was talking about his desire and the fact that their discussions focused on prospects for a permanent U.S. base in Poland. And President Duda went so far as to suggest that that base be called Fort Trump. Having identified the branding likes of the president here, that's a smart move. Right. But you just, you see the spectrum of opinion. Just in those three examples, there are many more, of course, but those, I think, capture very nicely the different views. What I'm wondering is, on the one hand, are either of these responses possible as individual countries or does Europe need to unite around one of them? Can these be pursued at the same time? Maybe let's start with the Polish part. You mentioned that there's a part of it is an ideological connection between the current Polish government and the American government. But at the same time, there is this overwhelming security perception that my understanding is widely shared in in Poland. Do you think that's a more general response in Poland that they have, for historical reasons and others, uh, realized that their only chance of feeling safe and secure in their neighborhood is to embrace the U.S. no matter what happens here? It will be interesting to see what does happen in the Polish-American relationship. It was interesting because when President Duda was here on that visit, there was some press in Poland that felt he had been treated without respect by President Trump. And there was a moment when they were signing an agreement and President Trump was seated directly behind the big imposing desk in the Oval Office. And President Duda was leaning somewhat awkwardly over the side edge of the desk. And this was the image that captured this in many Polish newspapers. It is clear that conversations are ongoing between the two administrations in Washington and Warsaw. There is an expectation that at some point later this year, there may be both a visit of President Duda here and followed by a visit of President Trump to Poland in which an announcement of some kind will be made. We don't know the contents of that announcement, but speculation is it will not be exactly what the polls want. It won't be a Fort Trump, but it will be incremental steps toward an increased U.S. troop presence in Poland. So I think it depends on how this moves forward. But what President Duda laid on the table is very much in keeping with President Trump's desires, which is President Trump has a transactional view of relationships. So for President Duda to say, we will pay you $2 billion and we'll call it for Trump, gets much closer to the president's view of a good deal for the United States. So I think how both partners in this engage will be important. Poland is one of a small number of NATO countries that does spend 2% of its GDP on defense. So in that context also, President Trump smiles favorably on Poland. So it also could be a relationship that both men benefit from. President Duda feeling he is making his country more secure and President Trump feeling that this is a good example of what a close and constructive transatlantic relationship could look like. At the same time, what strikes me is one of the lessons that I think many in Europe have taken is that a lot of things that were taken for granted or thought of as permanent apparently are not as safe or, or permanent as we thought they are. So interestingly, the the Polish approach here to make a deal, you know, makes me wonder 
you know, if it's a transactional deal, it can be reversed. Things can change. We, you know, we've seen how much can change after one election here. So that leads me to the French. Their response seems to have acknowledged that, that there is now a, a situation where U.S. policy could dramatically change and it's no longer from their point of view reliable or at least not fully reliable. You mentioned that they also realized that it's not an easy road to strategic autonomy or that they're nowhere near it. What would it take in your in your view? Is this a 10-year, 20-year or is this a, even achievable realistically and what is it what do they mean by autonomy? The ability to, you know, minimally defend themselves or even to be an actor on the world stage, for example. So, it's interesting Peter because I think that what you see in each of these cases is the current administration in the United States is laying bare for us much deeper or trends in these countries. So for Poland, because Poles feel a very real existential threat, their relationship to the United States, they see primarily through that prism. So while they had hoped and had believed that the alliance with the United States was something enduring, when confronted with a view that in the eyes of this president, it's transactional. They felt a need to meet that view by engaging in a transaction. Now, when you look at France and the ore trends there, in France, strategic autonomy has always had a cachet. And we have a long history of the French wanting to be independent of the U.S. Some people say the relationship between the United States and France is fraught at times because we're so similar, because we're two countries that both have big egos. Very proud, yeah. And now you see the French saying, okay, we for a long time believed we could trust the United States. And it made sense to hitch our strategic wagons together. But now that the resonance of strategic autonomy has taken on an urgency because the French worry that their reliance on the United States leads them to a place where they can't rely on the U.S. anymore, but they're facing dangers. They may not be existential dangers, but the French have a very proud geopolitical tradition. And we see the French involved, for example, in Mali today, because they're worried about the Islamic insurgents there and the counterterrorism the need to counter that terrorist threat before it reaches France. So the French are engaged militarily with, oh gosh, I think close to 4,000 troops now in Mali. And the French in that instance are quite dependent on U.S. intelligence for the operations they're carrying out. You could give lots of examples where the French are working very closely with the U.S. We might have deemed that cooperation up until now. The French today see it as a dependence that makes them vulnerable. Now, to your question, this takes a very long time for a France or for Europe to be strategically independent of the U.S. means they need to do a lot more than just spend 2% of their GDP on defense. And that gets to a question of how many countries in Europe are willing to do that. And that political will will only be generated if they feel threatened and if they believe that that is the place they need to put their euros. And these different reactions suggest that there is not a unified reaction as we talked about. So the challenge for France is not only to invest more domestically, 
but to convince their European allies to do the same. And interestingly, over the past year, I would argue France has made some progress on this for several reasons. One of them is the administration in the U.S. One of them is a desire on the part of Germany to be an engine of greater European integration. The Germans not so willing to do that on the Eurozone, more willing to do it on the security and defense front. And the fact that the U.K. is removing itself from the EU. Because the United Kingdom had been the key country that was a member of the EU that did not support deeper European security and defense cooperation because the UK felt it undermined NATO. But now, even though the UK is still an EU member, they have absolved themselves from many of these conversations about the future of the EU. So France has been able to make a good bit of progress towards deeper integration in that space. So there are a lot of interesting things happening that certainly we as Americans should be paying attention to. So this leads us to the third country. And here, since I am German, I get to pick on this response maybe a little bit more. That's the, that's the German response, which you described as strategic patience. One might also say, whereas strategic autonomy and strategic embrace, those are clear decisions, maybe driven by necessity in the Polish case, the security situation and in France by a long-standing wish or uh, dream, so to speak, and pride. And then there's the German patience, which I think patience is the you know positive way of, 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 of seeing this. One could also say indecisiveness. The Germans looked at what happened in the U.S. and are not yet sure what to, what to make of this. So I'm wondering, whereas the other two are clear responses, the German response is basically to wait and see what happens in the U.S. Is that just a feature of the German indecisiveness, unwillingness to engage in this field? especially on security issues because it's so difficult? Or might it be domestic German politics, which are in flux right now? How do you make sense of this reaction? So I think also with Germany that it goes back to fundamental lessons Germany has learned in the post-war period. So when World War II ended, Germany's path back into the international system, international respectability, international responsibility was by pursuing a policy of Westbindung, this connection to the West. And there were two fundamental elements of that. One was the relationship with the United States and the other was the process of European integration. And today, both of those elements of German foreign and security policy are being shaken. In the case of the relationship with the U.S., because of the singular attitudes of President Trump, in particular toward Germany, Germany in many ways is the poster child of what irks President Trump most in the relationship with Europe. That is, countries not spending enough on defense and a country running a very large trade surplus. And to be fair, that is not only something that irks Mr. Trump. That's widely shared, not in the same volume or you know, in the same um, expression, but that was already under the previous administration's uh, point that the American side has frequently held up to the Germans. Absolutely. And one could argue these are completely legitimate criticisms. I think most Americans would probably agree that Germany should spend more on defense. Most Americans are concerned about the trade balance. So the way President Trump talks about it is singular. And that's, of course, much more divisive in some of the language he's directed toward Germany. And one can talk about whether these are effective or less effective ways of trying to get certain outcomes from allies. But the relationship to the United States has been shaken 
in a way it hasn't been shaken in the past 70 years of that post-war relationship. And then you have a European Union, which was such an important way for Germany also to reestablish its relationships with its neighbors in Europe. And you have the second largest economy in the European Union, the UK, deciding on balance it would rather be out. We could point to several trends in the European Union that have increased those forces pulling at the seams of European integration rather than enhancing deeper European integration. So as both of these foundations are being shaken for Germany, Germany is trying to shore up those foundations. I think Germany is saying this has been an incredibly constructive foundation for Germany to pursue its interests. And we don't want to throw this away. We, for the moment, want to reinvest. (laughs) We want to try to keep the connective tissue there with the U.S. in the hope that there is a return to a more traditional policy. We in Germany want to reinvest in the European Union because we want at all costs to try to keep this European project moving forward. So again, I think it's I, I think it's unfair to say it's indecision or I think it very much reflects Germany's calculation of its interests and how those interests can best be served. Now at the same time, Germany's no doubt hedging in case that bet is wrong. Yeah. So there might be there, there might also be a, a discrepancy. I sometimes wonder in Germany between the public debate and then what actually is discussed in Berlin circles so much. Where I, I often wonder, especially in the transatlantic issue, and especially since the election of President Trump, who is not very popular in Germany and who, as you mentioned, has picked on Germany very publicly, and of course that uh, does not make him a very popular figure. So it's it's difficult sometimes for German policymakers at all levels to make the case for transatlantic relations right now. So they are kind of in a bit of a conundrum as is they could not follow a policy like the polls, for example, that is not a a real option for any German politician to embrace this administration. At the same time, the German public is also somewhat unwilling to follow a full-on strategic autonomy position because of the costs that would entail on defense spending and so on. So almost by virtue of not being able to follow one of these two ways, we're landing somewhere in the middle on hedging and trying to see what, what comes next. In your view, from the U.S. side, looking at this from Washington, how has the reaction been, A, from the administration? How have they engaged generally on this? And then secondly, you know quite well the broader foreign policy community in D.C. and and beyond. How are they now looking at Europe in this? Do they find these responses sensible, one more so than the others? Is there a, a sense that, you know, there is a way back to a transatlantic relations, not as it was before, but something similar maybe after this administration? Well, my crystal ball is a little cloudy, Peter, so it's hard to know how it ends. But I think these are really important questions because the fact of the matter is the way the U.S. has engaged with the rest of the world since the end of World War II has not been transactional. The U.S. has played a global leadership role that was based on a much broader calculation of U.S. interests. And we're sitting here in the headquarters of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. And if you think back to the Marshall Plan, that was a policy that reflected enlightened self-interest. 
Did it help the U.S.? Absolutely, because we were rebuilding markets for our own products in Europe. There are lots of ways the Marshall Plan and the rebuilding of Europe after the war helped the U.S., but it also was benevolent. It did help Europe at that time where the economies had been devastated by war, as had the population. So we've always had a much broader view of how this rules-based order benefited the U.S. There's also been a real benefit to the world. The most person, the most recent person to write eloquently about this was Bob Kagan in his book, The Jungle Grows Back. He argues that the world has experienced the largest period of time without great power conflict because of that role the U.S. played, its willingness to expend soft power and hard power to defend that order, or in Bob's words, to keep the vines of the jungle back. And so we don't know how long Donald Trump will be president. We don't know who succeeds Donald Trump. My sense is the Germans may well be right that the next U.S. president has a much more traditional understanding of how enduring alliance serves the interests of the U.S. And I think facts are stubborn things, and you can make a compelling case to demonstrate that advantage to the U.S. But I do think whomever succeeds Donald Trump as president will continue to expect more from our European allies and will continue to argue that the U.S. has to focus more on a country like China and how we engage with China, how we manage China's growth, what that means for the international system. That has important implications for Europe as well. But it means that challenges on Europe's border, the U.S. will look to Europe to take the lead on those contingencies. So I think the drumbeat of looking to Europe to take and shoulder greater responsibility will endure beyond this administration. Let me ask you maybe one follow-up to this, because from the European point of view, um, I agree, uh, of course, that the American, no matter who the next president will, the American side will demand more from Europe and has already previously. I think from the Europeans, a lot will come down to the next election because there is the sense that there's a cycle of uh, happening here in the U.S. or maybe this was kind of a slip-up in sorts. So if, let's assume, President Trump wins re-election, then I think the signal to the different responses in Europe is very clear that at least the polls are then know that you know, they will have to continue with their embrace. The French would be confirmed in their desire to be more autonomous and the Germans would probably have to make a decision. And I think there is a sense that then it would be more certain. And I don't know if we could have eight years of this and, and still have the tissue as intact as, uh, as might be necessary to put it all the way back together. I'm not saying that everything would fall apart. But with that in, in mind, do you expect in the upcoming elections, do you expect any of these questions to play any role or is it going to focus on domestic issues as most of the elections usually do? But do you think that's actually a, I mean, I know there will be foreign policy questions, of course, and debates and so on, but is that is that something that drives any of the candidates? In the U.S. Yes, election. sorry. So sadly, even though I think transatlantic <laughs> relations should be at the very top of everyone's priority list, 
transatlantic relations are not. So I do not think that this will be driving voters in the United States. It's interesting because if you look at public opinion surveys today, Americans are still very broadly supportive of our European friends and allies and like them. And I don't think they're focused so much And I think sometimes they're surprised when they hear how upset many of our European allies are with U.S. policy. And you take an example like the fact that the U.S. has slapped steel and aluminum tariffs on our closest European allies. What particularly galls Europeans is that we used a national security exemption to put those tariffs in place. So they come and say, look, we thought we were your closest allies and we stood by you after the attacks of 9-11. We've lost a thousand European lives in Afghanistan standing tall with you. And this is what we get in return. And I think Americans, broadly speaking, are not following those dynamics in the relationship. I think it is interesting to think about how this plays in European elections as well. You made a point earlier about how German domestic politics are focused on this issue of defense spending. We see European Parliament elections where there's a lot of conversation about European unity versus European disunity. And... You know, it's interesting because the the piece that you referenced where I spelled out these three different reactions to U.S. policy ends on this note where I make a call for strategic responsibility. And what I mean by that is you pointed out that the U.S. has a long track record of asking our European allies to spend more on defense, if we take that example. And I now, as I reflect on this rather sad history, because frankly, we weren't terribly successful when we asked nicely, I actually don't think we've been more successful by demanding, sometimes rudely. I think the reason we've seen an increase in defense spending is because of what Russia did in Ukraine in 2014. And I think it should not escape our notice that the countries that have increased their defense spending most dramatically are our NATO allies that form NATO's eastern border. So they perceive a very real threat from a clearly aggressive Russia. And in a case like Germany, what you see is the attention of the president to it has turned it into a political football. It becomes a campaign issue. When we think about this at the European level, I think that a goal of or policy pursued by Europeans of strategic responsibility should be able to galvanize cross-party support in Europe. What do I mean by that? I mean Germany or pick your European country should not spend more on defense because we, the Americans, are asking nicely or we're demanding it. Germans should spend more on defense because they should want an effective army, an effective Bundeswehr that can defend German interests if needed. And I would think that idea of European countries wanting to have military capability that allows them to defend their interests and values should be something that all Europeans can agree on. So to the French, I would say, you know, maybe don't talk about strategic autonomy because autonomy is a word that can be heard in friendly or less friendly ways, depending on where you are. And given that it will take a very long 
time for you to be wholly independent of the United States. And Washington is one of the places where that phrase isn't heard in a particularly friendly way. Really focus on European capabilities and taking strategic responsibility that Europe is strong enough in terms of human resources, in terms of money, in terms of resources defined broadly to play a larger role in global stability. And that's something Europe says it wants. So Europe, in pursuing a policy of strategic responsibility, now needs to invest the resources to actually breathe life into that policy. I think that is a perfect place to stop with a good call to action at the end. Thank you, Karen, for joining us. And we'll certainly have you back for uh, next iteration of this. Peter, always so fun to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. Out of Order is produced by Sydney Simon and Zachary Tarrant. New episodes will be available every other Thursday. Subscribe and download on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation. Leah Mathau is Chief Content Officer. Shay O'Mara is Manager of Editorial Operations. Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, thanks to all of you.